Good morning. Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 21. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whose for sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteous that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of what for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have in us, as we model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now, and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Michael, thank you for reading our lesson this morning. Uh, I gave Michael almost the entire book of Philippians to read, and uh, I am so grateful to you. Uh, 
I, I feel like there might be a, a preacher behind that voice, Michael, of yours. Uh, we'll send you to seminary if you're ready to go. Uh, we're grateful to you. My goodness, Dan Magisha, uh, this choir ensemble that you have brought from Legacy Village, we're so grateful that you're here today. It makes this day more special for us on Pentecost. And they're going to sing again, so we look forward to that uh, during our communion time. William Mazuera, uh, my good friend, is here, and I have tremendous respect and love for you and your family and for the work that you do, and it means a lot to have you with us, William, on Pentecost. Uh, I have some lifelong friends who, who are here. Uh, Dr. James King and his wife Charmaine are over here with the Waylands, and uh, they're life, lifelong friends. It means a lot, Jim to see you in Charmaine, uh, our love to Cannon when you get home and, and to be with all of you on Pentecost. Happy birthday, church. Today is the birthday of the church. Uh, and after having preached the Acts series last fall, I'm not gonna preach the Pentecost text today because I interrupted the series last week. We talked about Micah 4, what does it mean to beat our swords into plowshares? What does it mean to, to beat our spears into pruning hooks? We talked about that last week. I interrupted the series, and I want to come back to it. This is the next to last message in this series called Joyful. We're going through Philippians sequentially, uh, and next week will be our last message. Two weeks from today, uh, here's, here's a ruthless commercial for you. Uh, we're going to begin a series called Life Verses. And I'm going to talk about different texts that are our life verses that are common to us, like Romans 8, 28, and John 3, 16, and others. And that'll be our summer series two weeks from today. But today, our next to last message on Philippians. Two weeks ago, we, we talked about the fact that we desperately need, in our culture, examples of Jesus. We need that in our church. We need that in our world. Uh, we need leaders and disciples who not only can articulate or preach the faith, but also who can model it. I quoted Benjamin Franklin, you remember, who said, a good example is the best sermon you'll ever hear. Some of you remember John Wooden, the great basketball coach at UCLA, who said, and I quote, the most powerful leadership tool that you have is your own personal example. And in that message, we were on Philippians 2, Paul gave us two models or examples to follow. You remember their names, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were colleagues. They were protégés of Paul. Paul had prayed with them. Paul had taught with them. Paul had served with them. And he lifts them up as examples. And then here, Michael, in what you just read in chapter 3, Paul gives us another example to follow, namely, himself. <laughs> now, that's a little strange. Verse 17, join together in following my example, he writes, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He didn't say who preach as we do. He said, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, is it just me, or does it sound a little presumptuous that Pastor Paul is lifting himself up as an example? 
I'm very, very careful to do that. I've made far too many mistakes to ask you to follow my every move and then for you to call me when I move the wrong direction to explain my sins to me. Sounds a little presumptuous to cite yourself as an example. But Paul's not being arrogant. He's being a leader. He knows that actions always speak louder than words. And so at this point, Paul's not interested in preaching it. He's living it. We know that he's writing this letter from a prison cell where he's waiting at any moment for the verdict to come from the Roman tribunal that that he's going to lose his life or he's going to be acquitted. He's living it. He writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, something similar to the church at Corinth. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And so he's not showboating. He's not spiking the football. He's not grandstanding. He's not tooting his own horn. He's imitating Jesus, and by so doing, he's drawing others into the fold. In other words, Paul is mirroring the mindset of Jesus. You remember chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's the keynote of this entire letter. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant, becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. He emptied himself. Our choir just took off youth choir for Washington, D.C., They're going to sing at the National Cathedral tonight. They're going to sing at Brevard United Methodist Church. Seventy of them have gone with their chaperones. Pray for the chaperones. (laughs) They're on their way to Washington, D.C., where they're going to sing in the National Cathedral and perhaps see if we can keep gas under $5. That's another story. I noticed on their whiteboard when they were rehearsing that their director, James Wells, had written these words. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are full of yourself. You cannot be full of the Spirit when you are full of yourself. He emptied himself. And so what Paul is doing, he's not setting himself up as the standard. He's pointing to Jesus as the standard. And that's a mighty high bar to try to emulate. I was in traffic the other day, quoting verses from the Old Testament. (laughs) And I saw a sign, a bumper sticker on a car in front of me that said, if at first you don't succeed, lower your standards. (laughs) And I thought to myself, "I, I think I'd rather shoot high and miss then shoot low and win. There's trouble in Philippi. As joyful as this flock is, and it is joyful, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice, charis, 14 times in four chapters, but it was not without its issues. All churches have their issues, except for this one. All the other churches that I know of have issues. There were two factions in the church that were lowering the bar. One was a group of legalists. Paul refers to them as Judaizers. They were Jewish legalists. 
And they were advocating that grace is not enough for salvation. You have to add to it. It's grace plus law, or grace plus circumcision, or grace plus dietary regulations. In other words, what the legalists were saying is, in order to be a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. And Paul would have none of it. In fact, he he calls this group a name. This is in the Bible. He calls them dogs. And he's not in Georgia. (laughs) Beware of the dogs, he says. What's that mean? Well, it's a common slur. It's often used by zealous Jews of Gentiles. In that day, dogs were not pets. They were pests. They were unclean scavengers to be avoided. And he calls them dogs. Now, in my mind, I go back to Matthew 15. There's a troubling passage there where Jesus and friends were in Phoenicia, north of Israel. They were in Gentile country when this Canaanite woman, a Gentile, approached him begging Jesus to heal her daughter who was in bad shape. And Jesus says something unusual, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. In other words, to the Jews. The woman replies by saying it's not, uh, uh, please help me. She calls him son of David, which is a profession of faith. It's a messianic profession. Lord, son of David, please help me. And Jesus says something really unusual. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm a little troubled by that response. Did Jesus just really call this? And she replies, listen to this, but Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus was so moved by her faith that he stopped what he was doing and he healed that child on the spot. He completely disregarded the ethnic and religious prejudice of his day in his own people and responded with grace to her need. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you read the Gospels, have you ever noticed how Jesus has a habit of turning to those that we turn away from. Have you ever noticed that? It's a habit of Jesus. In chapter three, Michael, Paul uses this same slur, dogs, now against his own kinsmen because they're demanding that these Gentile believers must be circumcised to be saved. And Paul knows you don't add anything to grace for salvation. Grace plus nothing equals salvation. Unconditional love, unconditional mercy. You don't merit it. You don't warrant it. You don't earn it. He writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. Now, if you know Paul, earlier in his life, he tried the legalistic route. And as far as I can tell, it only made him meaner. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks of his life before Christ, B.C. He was Mr. Religious. In fact, he gives us his pious pedigree, his biosketch. Early on in his life, he became so zealous for the law that he actually attacked the early church 
By the way, Paul was voted by his senior class in high school most likely to be elected pope. He endorsed early on in his life an honor killing in Acts 7 of a disciple named Stephen. He held their coats while they stoned him to death. The man was so impassioned that he became convinced that those followers of the way were a threat to Jewish orthodoxy and something had to be done about it until he met Jesus. Legalism. My favorite definition is from a Catholic scholar named Richard John Newhouse. I have it for you. Legalism is a dull heresy peddled by disappointed people who are angry because they have not received what they had no good reason to expect. David Kinnaman has written a book. He's of the Barna Group, has written a book called Unchristian. The subtitle is What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity and Why It Matters. He begins with a question, what are Christians known for? And then he answers the question. Too many outsiders think of us, they think of our moralizing, of our condemnation, and our attempts to draw boundaries around everything. And even if these standards are accurate, they seem to be sometimes all the church has to offer. And our lives are often a poor example of our own standards. He says, and I quote, this is troubling, we have set the game board to register lifestyle points. And then we're surprised to be trapped by our mistakes. The truth is, and this is clergy, we have invited the hypocrite image in many cases. God forgive us. Every now and then I'll invite someone to church and they'll say, I don't want to come where all those hypocrites are and I'll say, we have room for one more. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it, but when I read the paper last week about our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, it broke my heart. 700 names swept under the rug, sexual misconduct, and I'm not picking on the Baptists. Please understand, when, when I get through with the Methodist, it's bedtime. I immediately called my friend at First Baptist, Mike Glenn, I'm praying for you. He said, I've been praying for you a long time. <laughs> we pray for each other, we're dear friends. And a moral failure in one church is is a moral failure for all of us. And it occurred to me, it occurred to me if, if we spent as much time repenting of our sin as we do rationalizing and justifying and sweeping our sin under the rug, the world would be a much better place. There was another fringe group in the church, not just the legalists, but the libertines. They were not adding anything to grace. They were cheapening it. They were turning the liberty that Jesus gives us into license to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever feels good. And Paul calls them out too in chapter three, verse 18. They are living, he said, as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. In other words, their thinking was stinking. 
Their mindset was warped. They were thinking, hey, since God has given us grace, what does it matter how we live? The more we sin, the more grace we get. It's like Doritos. They'll make more. The missionary preachers had been preaching freedom in Christ and were thankful for it. Paul was a foremost preacher of freedom. But some of the people perceived that this message was an opportunity for self-indulgence. And frankly, they were too immature to see that liberty can become license for the worst kind of bondage, and that's bondage to myself, to my own whims and wishes rather than to Jesus and his mission. So you've got two factions. One extreme is preaching abstinence on everything, and the other group is preaching self-indulgence. Well, if we're going to imitate Paul, who's imitating Jesus, Paul says we have to learn to die to ourselves. And that's a painful process. To die to myself means that my life is no longer my own. Your life is no longer your own. Your prayer is no longer my will, but thy will be done. I've studied church history at every level. Our 2,000-year history, and I don't know why it is, but it's true that our faith history for 2,000 years is a tug of war between legalists and libertines, both of which are overly dogmatic. They're both dogs. Overly dogmatic in our thinking. And Paul is writing them and us to remind us of the center the center of our faith is in Jesus. The center of our faith is in a sacrifice of body and blood. Grace plus nothing equals everything. But once you accept it, it will renovate your house. It will change your life to where you become an example an imitation of Jesus. So what's the solution? Paul gives it to us in our text. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. This is in chapter three. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking. Because of Jesus, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is irrelevant. It's insignificant. It's refuse. The real word is dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Jesus and be embraced by him. I don't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I can get the robust kind that comes from simply trusting Christ as my Savior and my center. We've said all the way along, if you can think like Jesus, we can live like Jesus. And you become an example. Two things, and I'm, I'm finished. We'll come to the table. I went to a luncheon two weeks ago down in the tabernacle where our youth meet it was hosted by CYMT. Uh, that is an acronym for Center for Youth Ministry Training. It's one of our strategic missional partners. Many of you know about it. Our own Deech Kirk 
is the executive director. You know Deitch as Keeley's husband, or better yet, as Theron and Cecil's son, or ultimately known as Carlisle and Hallie Mae's dad. CYMT is headquartered next door on our property at Buchanan House. Over the last 16 years, they have trained and graduated 150 youth ministers and placed them in local churches. Two-thirds of the Methodist churches in our conference have youth ministers trained through CYMT. There are currently 60 youth ministers who are in the program who are serving communities in 12 states which makes it the largest graduate program in youth ministry in the country. And God used you to birth this. Deet showed us a slide two weeks ago with the names of pastors and youth pastors who have come out of, from, or through our church. I counted 30. Names like Travis Garner. Names like Paul Bonner. Uh, names like Connor Williams, Casey Orr, Adam Jones, Annie Wilson, Sean Kate Orr, Hannah DeFada, and Olivia Keffer, all of those were incubated here. Olivia got up and shared a testimony, and she said she gave honorable mention to two laywomen who spent four years of their lives during her high school year to spend Sunday nights teaching their small group. Four years, and she said, both of these women didn't have daughters. They only had sons. They didn't know what to do. But they spent every Sunday night for four years, and they mentioned Carrie Pogue and Susan Graham by name. And I thought to myself, isn't it amazing how God, through his spirit, can use a community as an incubator for children who hear the voice of God and are sent into the world as examples? That's why I don't worry about the church. Last word, and I mean it this time. Some of you know the name Will Williman, who for 20 years was dean of the chapel at Duke University. During that time, he got a phone call one day from an irate father. The man was angry because his graduate school-bound daughter had decided, in his words, to throw it all away do mission work in Haiti for the Presbyterian Church. He said to Dr. Williman, it's absolutely absurd that my daughter, who has a Bachelor of Science degree from Duke University, is going to dig ditches in Haiti, and I'm holding you responsible. Will said, well, why me? Because, he said, you have ingratiated yourself to her, and you have filled her head with all this Jesus business. Well, if you know Will Williman, he is not easily intimidated. And so he asked the father, Sir, who took this girl to be baptized as a baby? And he said, Well, uh, her mother and I. Did, did you let her go to Sunday school every Sunday when she was a little girl? Yes. Did you send her on choir tours and youth mission trips? Did you pay for that? He said, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? To which Will replied, sir, I think you're pointing the finger at the wrong person. You're the reason she's throwing it all away. You introduced her to Jesus, not me. 
He said, well, hold on. All we wanted to do was make her a Presbyterian. <laughs> and then Will, who has an instinct for the jugular, said, well, I have to tell you, you messed up pretty bad because you've gone and made her a disciple. And now she's an example. Word of warning. If and when you expose your children to Jesus, they may just throw all your plans away. And I hope they do. I hope you do. I hope we do. So that we too can be an example worth imitating. In Jesus' name.